Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is your 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Tonight, we're going back to 1898, the evening of October the 7th, and we're in the White House. President William McKinley, who was born in Niles, Ohio, and rose to power during a legal career centered in Canton, is in the first year of his presidency. And this night, he's socializing with guests at a party in the East Room. His wife, Ida, is with him, and her sister, Mary Barber, is in town. Ida and Mary were children of the wealthy and prominent Saxton family back home in Canton. They circulated among guests that included the political, religious, and military elite. And few probably noticed when President McKinley's private secretary slipped into the room and sidled up to the president. The secretary whispered in his ear, tragic news from home. The president paled, then whispered forcefully to his aide, Mrs. McKinley must not be told. Ida was in frail health, to the point of almost being a recluse. She suffered a variety of chronic ailments and was vulnerable to seizures. President McKinley knew he needed the right moment to break it to her. Around midnight, after the guests had departed and Ida was relaxed and settled in, McKinley went to Ida and his sister-in-law, Mary. The news couldn't wait till morning, when it would certainly be bold-faced headlines all over the country. Their brother, George Saxton, had been murdered, shot to death. A suspect was in custody. President McKinley didn't need to say her name. He told Ida and Mary it was that woman. They knew who he meant. Ida, Mary, and George were the three children born to Catherine and James Saxton, whose family had settled in Canton in the early 19th century and made a fortune in real estate and banking, on their way to becoming one of the city's most wealthy and prominent families. The Saxton children were close, three kids born in less than three years. Ida was the first, Mary was the second, and they both did as expected and married respectably. George was the baby, and he grew into a rogue that had his sisters wringing their hands. As a businessman, George was smart and successful. He had always been groomed to take over his father's role, and after his father's death, he slipped easily into those shoes. As a young man, he had everything going for him. Not only a silver spoon in his mouth, he was charming, good-looking, smart, and a fashionable dresser. If there was a society party or affair, you can bet George Saxton was on the invitation list. George lived in the family mansion at 333 South Market Street. Even after his parents died, 
He remained there as the residence became the domain of his sister Mary, her husband Marshall Barber, and their children. But George also maintained an apartment further down South Market, between West 8th and 9th Streets, a little pad for his more, well, private needs. After all, George was one of Stark County's most eligible bachelors, a standing he seemed determined to hang on to. He had been engaged at least a couple of times, but managed to avoid the altar. His scandalous affairs and promiscuity were no secret. After he ended his first engagement to a sweet and pious girl who died shortly after the breakup, the community decided she had succumbed to a broken heart, and George Saxton was forever after considered a scoundrel. George didn't seem to much care, and his taste for the ladies was not limited to just the available stock. One of his relationships was a wife and mother. That woman was Annie George. Annie was born in neighboring Columbiana County, where she married a humble carpenter named Sample George. And when Annie was 26, the couple, along with their two sons, moved from the tiny village of Hanoverton to Canton, Ohio, taking up residence in the South End. Canton, was the big city for the wide-eyed Annie, who had hardly been out of Hanoverton her entire life. By the way, since Annie and Sample's last name is George, I'm only going to refer to them by their first names to avoid confusion. If I say George from this point forward, I'm talking about George Saxton. Now, Annie was a beautiful woman. She worked as a dressmaker. She was 10 years younger than George Saxton, who apparently couldn't resist the fun of courting a married woman. Annie caught George's attention when he saw her shopping at a store in what was known as the Saxton Block, since the Saxtons owned the whole thing. A store employee arranged for them to talk. As their relationship grew, George invited her, her, well, gullible husband, and their children to move into an apartment he owned on the Saxton block. George began bringing Annie clothes to mend, then started visiting her while her husband worked. Sometimes when Sample was gone, he would eat dinner with her and her children, even take them out to activities like when the Barnum Circus came to town. Next came expensive gifts, and after a couple of years, Sample finally realized that gifts of jewelry might hint that his wife was sleeping with George. Sample demanded the affair end. Even George's sisters, Ida and Mary, knew of the affair and frowned on it, though they accepted they had never been able to rein in their promiscuous brother. Eventually, Annie agreed to leave her husband and she and George made no effort to conceal their affair as Annie moved into an elegant suite in George's office building. In 1892, George gave Annie $1,200 and sent her off to South Dakota, where she would be able to obtain a divorce after six months of residency. Annie's husband, Sample, was not going down without a fight. 
When his wife left, he filed a $30,000 lawsuit against George for alienation of his wife's affections. That lawsuit would drag on for six years, and a lot happened in those six years. You see, Annie fully expected that when she returned from South Dakota, she would become Mrs. George Saxton. But for George, the fire had gone out. Nothing ruins a good chase like the capture of one's prey. Annie learned that in her absence, George had been wooing several other women, some of them even married as she had been. And when he finally admitted he really didn't want to put a ring on it, Annie was distraught. She was 40 years old now and had invested more than a decade in George. She had lost her family, her reputation, and was penniless. She couldn't walk down the street without everyone knowing who she was and what had happened to her. Annie sued George for breach of promise, and it appeared to work for a little while. She withdrew it when George said he would keep his promise to marry her. They took a trip to Pennsylvania. George even registered her as his wife in their hotel. At his request, she agreed to return to him any letters that had been exchanged. George told her that the last barrier to their marriage was Sample's alienation of affection lawsuit, and that as soon as that was not hanging over his head, they would tie the knot. But George was soon back to his old shenanigans, ignoring Annie and pursuing his new favorite conquest, the widow Eva Althaus. He not only withdrew his affection from Annie, but his financial help as well. Annie was left on her own to find shelter and food. Witnesses had seen her pleading with him for money so she could afford lodging and had seen him turn her away. And so Annie stalked George and Eva incessantly. At one point, she confronted the pair of them while they were bike riding, pulled a gun on George, and warned if he didn't stop seeing Eva, she would kill him. Both Eva and George took out restraining orders against her. Annie was even facing federal charges for sending threats of violence to George through the mail. The last straw for Annie may have come October the 5th, 1898, when George finally settled that six-year-long $30,000 lawsuit by Annie's ex-husband. Local newspapers reported Sample had accepted $1,825 from George. Sample revealed to reporters that he was just eager to put the past behind him because he had secretly been married for the past year and was happy and content. He had wed Lucy Graham from Alliance, and they were living in Wheeling, West Virginia. One can only wonder when Annie thought of articles like the one in the Stark County Democrat, which condensed Sample's boast into the headline, Better Wife Than He Had Before. Two days after that settlement, on October the 7th, Annie, or somebody, had had enough of George. It was just after six in the evening, 
and 48-year-old George rode his bike to Eva's house at 319 Lincoln Avenue. He was ready for a night of romance. He wore a three-piece suit with a flower in his lapel, and his satchel contained a bottle of champagne and pajamas. Eva was not home. She had gone to care for her ailing sister and had been absent the past three days, but George never got to her front door to find out. Eva's house and lawn was about four feet above the street's surface. George had parked his bike at the curb and began walking up the wooden steps from the sidewalk to her lawn. That's when a witness would later say he saw a figure in a black dress with a face covered by a veil fire at George twice from a short distance. George fell and cried out for help. According to the witness, the assailant walked a few paces, then turned, went back to George, and fired two more bullets into his body before hurrying away. Police arrived to find George already dead. But detectives moved quickly. They knew exactly who they needed to question. Just two hours later, Annie was in jail and charged with George's murder. Clearly, they had good reason to suspect her. They knew all about the restraining order and the threats of violence. And what they didn't know about their troubled relationship from those legal filings, they knew from the society pages. Annie had told her friends repeatedly that things with George were going to end in either a wedding or a funeral. Police needed some hard evidence. They found a streetcar driver named Rittenhouse who said Annie had gotten off the car on Hazlett Avenue just before 6 p.m. Hazlett is the route George would have taken to Eva's house. When detectives picked Annie up, her dress had burrs and pine needles on it, an indication that perhaps she had been slinking through some growth or underbrush. And police found a black residue on her hand, which they said smelled like gunpowder. But there was no witness that could verify she was the black-clad assailant who shot George. There was no murder weapon. And the timeline of Annie's day sort of gave her an alibi. She said she had left the room where she was boarding at 1516 West Tuscarora Street, about eight that morning. That's about five blocks from where Eva Althouse lived. Annie told the landlady she would return after supper, and she had supper at the Star Restaurant around 5.30 that evening. When police picked up Annie, she was at the home of a woman who said she had been there since 6.30. Not everyone agreed on whether she could have moved about the city as fast as those timestamps would have allowed her. Now, one of Eva's neighbors, Henry Derman, he was returning from a shopping trip when he saw George arrive at Eva's house, park his bike at the curb, and then advance up the steps to the lawn. He told a reporter when he heard the gun go off, I said to myself, Saxton is getting it. We had all expected it in this end of the city and I knew at once that Annie was carrying out the threats she had made so often. 
As a matter of fact, several neighbors testified to the very same thing, that when the shots rang out, they assumed Annie had finally killed George. The shooting happened when it was starting to get dark. The sun had just set a few minutes earlier. The neighbor, Derman, said he saw the shooter run from the scene, but didn't approach George right away because he was afraid of being attacked himself. So he took his groceries inside first, then walked back to Eva's house, struck a match, and looked at George's body, where it lay along the slope of the lawn as it descended to the sidewalk. After Annie was arrested, a correspondent who had been long covering George's many newsworthy moments in Canton visited her in her jail cell. He recounted this exchange. You remember you told me you would kill Saxton if he did not keep away from the Althouse place? The reporter asked her. Yes, I remember I told you that, Annie said. And you remember that I told you that if you did, you would very likely be executed for it? The reporter asked. Yes, Annie said. And I remember that I said I didn't care if I was. But Annie gave detectives nothing. As her interrogation began, she answered the first question by saying, I will talk when the proper time comes. But apparently the proper time never came because she never said a word, not so much as a no comment to them after. Not a word. In the end, all police really had was a motive, a very powerful motive, but just a motive. At the White House, the news of George's murder arrived in a telegram, which was whispered to President McKinley during that party in the East Room. When he finally conveyed the news to Ida later that evening, reports said she bore up remarkably well. The telephone was a young invention in 1898, but they had it available, and the president and Ida spent some time trying to talk to friends and family back home, collecting details. One news account, however, said the long-distance service was terrible and hardly worth the effort. The president and Ida left for home the next day to make funeral arrangements, and after George's body was released, he was laid to rest in the Saxton family plot at West Lawn Cemetery in Canton. Annie's trial opened on April the 4th, 1899. She cut quite a pose. One newspaper described her as beautiful, tall, graceful with clear-cut features, lustrous black eyes, and black hair tinged with gray. During the trial, men sent bouquets of flowers to her at the defense table. Annie's 17-year-old son, Newton, went to the trial to support her. Her other son was younger and still in school. By contrast, the victim was not well-loved, at least not by many outside his family. He had few male friends and had wounded most of the women who had cared for him. The greater Canton community had long seen him as a destroyer of families. Annie did not testify, and reporters said no one from the Saxton or McKinley families attended the trial 
nor released any public statement before, during, or after. And so the state leaned on Annie's motive for killing George, while her defense countered that the dead man had plenty of enemies. Annie's gambit had been that, regardless of whether the jury believed her innocent or not, once they heard the testimony of others as to how she'd been wronged, they wouldn't want to see her die in the electric chair. And she was right. Throughout coverage of the trial, there was a sense that everyone was on her side. Reporters portrayed her as a once-innocent woman who had been plucked from a decent life by the wiles of a narcissist. George was the spider, Annie the fly. One article in the Stark County Democrat even mused that it was too bad George Saxton wasn't around to be tried on charges of defiling a home. Even Annie's ex-husband, Sample, who testified in the trial, refused to say a bad word about her. The trial lasted 22 days before it went to the jury. They deliberated for 23 hours before sharing the final word on this case. Not guilty. The crowd in the courtroom cheered. After the trial, Annie went on a public speaking tour, hoping to support herself. But it was a dismal failure. Editorial suggested that since she had gotten away with murder, she should just count her blessings and drop out of sight. In 1903, she remarried to a doctor named Arthur Rideout, who gambled, drank heavily, and killed himself in 1906. Annie ended up in New York, where she died of cancer in 1922 at the age of 63. She's buried in Brooklyn. I've got an epilogue to this story. Two years after Annie's trial, on September the 14th, 1901, President William McKinley attended the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York. In the crowd was a man named Leon Cholgosh, and he carried a concealed gun and a handkerchief. As McKinley greeted people, Cholgosh made his way up the line, and when he reached the president, he shot him twice in the abdomen. McKinley urged his aides to break the news gently to Ida and called off the mob that had set on Cholgosh, probably saving the assassin's life. A surgeon removed one bullet from McKinley but couldn't find the second. And in the days after the shooting, he appeared to be improving. Even as vice president, Teddy Roosevelt kept his plans for a camping trip to the Adirondacks. But there were no drugs in those days to control infection and the danger of sepsis. And the rosy prognostications of McKinley's medical team were unwarranted. Gangrene had grown on the walls of the president's stomach, slowly poisoning his blood. By the evening of September 13, McKinley knew he was dying. It is useless, gentlemen, he said to those at his bedside. I think we ought to have prayer. Ida held his hand and sobbed over him. I want to go too. I want to go too. William tried to comfort her. We are all going. God's will be done, not ours. 
At 2.15 a.m. on September the 14th, President McKinley died. His assassin was put on trial for murder just nine days after his death. He was found guilty, sentenced to death, and electrocuted on October 29. It had been just five weeks since he fired that gun. That's it for our 10-minute mystery. We'll see you next Sunday for our next full episode. Until then, enjoy the rest of your week. May all of your mysteries have happy endings. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, will discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show.